You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 47, Down to Egypt. I believe this is the next to the last episode on Jacob's life. Uh, There have been quite a few. I haven't even taken the time to count them all. But I wanted to go through his life thoroughly. It's something I don't get to do from the pulpit or in church, and there's enough time to do whatever I want to do on here So I appreciate your patience. We've broken it up a little bit here and there, and I'm excited to get on to new things, but I've really enjoyed going through the life of Jacob. He has a lot of... There there are a lot of ways when you look at his life to apply it to real practical life today. Even though he lived in such a different time and under another covenant and... There, there are so many religious differences and cultural differences, but the human being comes across. And that's what's so interesting about Jacob and really all the biblical characters. I just think there are so many details about his life. The Bible seems to dwell on him a little bit more than your average Bible character. Now, this episode, as I said, is called Down to Egypt. We're going to continue the Joseph part of the story And now we're going to find Jacob in old age. But in order to really get the point of this whole story, we need to go back to this promise that God made to Abraham. Because really, the whole Bible hinges on this one promise. The promise made to Abraham when he obeyed God's command to leave the land of his fathers for an unknown place full of strangers and uncertainty. The record of this promise reads this way in Genesis chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you want to break that down, you can break the covenant with Abraham down into two parts. Number one. This childless man in his old age would have a son, and that son would eventually become a great nation. That's the first part. And the second part of it, which is absolutely essential, we we leave it out a lot of times, but this is essential to the covenant. The second part of it is that in that nation that came from Abraham's descendants, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So those are the two parts of the covenant. Number one, great nation. Number two, that nation will bless all other nations. And of course, as Christians, we understand that would eventually become realized in Jesus Christ. So just as God promised, he gave Abraham a child, and that child had twins, and the youngest of these had 12 sons, and his name is, as you know, Jacob. Jacob may have a lot of children and grandchildren, but things were far from the picture seen in the covenant with Abraham. And so at this point in the story, if you're keeping track with the covenant, you may be asking, was God going to keep his promise to Abraham? Jacob and his wives had made a number of parental blunders, which turned the family into a dysfunctional mess. Uh, Jacob favored his firstborn son with Rachel, Uh, This Joseph and Joseph had these dreams of dominance over his parents and siblings. And his parents hate, I mean, his uh, brothers hated him. 
and sold him into slavery, and then they dipped his coat in goat's blood and showed it to their father, and he assumed that Jacob was, that Joseph was dead. And so everything is really messed up at this point. And now Joseph has landed in Egypt, and he initially became successful serving in the house of an Egyptian captain named Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife made false accusations against Joseph, which resulted in his imprisonment. And then while he was in prison, the Lord blessed Joseph, just as he had blessed him in Potiphar's house. And Joseph was put in charge of all of the prisoners. And while there, he encountered two prisoners and correctly interpreted their dreams. One of them, a cupbearer to Pharaoh, promised to tell his master about Joseph when he was restored to his position. But he forgot... And Joseph spent two more years in confinement. And so again, you wonder, has God forgotten? Does God break his promises? Does God just rashly make promises to people? Is he manipulating Abraham's family? Does he really intend on doing anything with these people? And just when it appears that he had forgotten Abraham's family and the whole human race... A number of events occur to prove God's faithfulness. So the real theme of today's episode is the faithfulness of God. And there are three things that happen that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had not forgotten his promise that he made to Abraham. Their three events are interlaced in such a way that it's difficult to divide them up. And so we're not going to discuss them separately but I'll, I'll point them out here, and then we'll go through the story. And those three events are, are these. Number one, Joseph's deliverance. He will eventually get out of prison. Number two, Jacob's family's relief from famine. And then number three, the reunion of Jacob and his son Joseph. So those are the three. And like I said, they're so interlaced that I'm not going to go through them one by one. We're just going to I'm just going to summarize the story. It's going to cover a lot of chapters at once. And if we were doing this podcast on Joseph, well, I'd slow down. But it's about Jacob, so I'm going to emphasize the points about Jacob's life and how they affect him as head of this family. So, as I said, Joseph is lingering in prison, and now two years have elapsed since the cupbearer had been restored to his position in the king's court. And Pharaoh, the king here, he has a dream. It's a weird dream. Here it is. Two, two whole years passed, and Genesis chapter 41 reads that behold, there, that, that Pharaoh, excuse me, that Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and, jo- and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of corn, plump and good, were growing on one, on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the seven ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Rough night, right? Weird dreams. He has these two dreams, and he wants them interpreted. 
And finally, the cupbearer remembers Joseph, and Joseph comes and tells the king the dream meant seven years of great plenty, followed by seven years of severe famine. He makes a proposition that Pharaoh make preparations for the coming famine. And so, continuing to read in chapter 41, here's verses 33 and following. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to, to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So that's... Joseph's proposition, and that pleased Pharaoh so much that he suggested that Pharaoh oversee the, uh, I'm getting all my names mixed up, pardon me, that Joseph oversee the project, and Joseph suddenly finds himself moving from prison to second in the kingdom in one day. So seven years of plenty go by, the famine comes just as Joseph said, And even Jacob's family in Beersheba suffers from the blight. So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt, where because of Joseph there were still storehouses full of grain. And he says, go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers go down, all of them except for Benjamin, and find themselves standing before their long-lost brother begging him for food. Now, Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize him. I suppose... You know, he's aged quite a bit, and he probably is made up like an Egyptian who looked a lot different from Israelites, and so there were a lot of reasons why they should not have been able to recognize him. But Joseph takes advantage of the situation, and we find him engaging in the kind of duplicity that we've been seeing from his father. He does five things in particular. He charges them with espionage. He challenges their credibility. He puts them in jail for three days. He demands that the younger brother, which is his only full brother, be brought to Egypt, talking about Benjamin, and he insists that one brother be left in Egypt as a guarantee that the brothers would return with Benjamin. And you look at this and you might accuse Joseph of getting revenge, and who could blame him if, if that's what he's doing? Uh, really, who, who would blame him for that? But more than likely, he was doing this. He was trying to learn about the welfare of Jacob and Benjamin and also seeking to ascertain whether his brothers had changed over the past 20 years. They had been pretty bad, you have to admit. So the brothers, after a lot of hand-wringing and trying to figure out what to do, they they leave Simeon in Egypt and they start home. And to their surprise... They find that Joseph had returned the money they used to purchase their food. Now, Jacob, he hears about all of this, and he doesn't like what he hears at all. He gets really angry. He says the brothers had bereaved him of Joseph and now Simeon and told them they could not take Benjamin to Egypt, or he knew that he would lose Benjamin as well. But the famine persisted, and eventually Jacob's family had eaten the grain they had brought brought from Egypt. So now they either starve to death or they take their chances with Joseph 
back in Egypt again. Jacob finally resigns himself to sending Benjamin with his brothers so that they could get more food. And he says, as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And they arrive in Egypt again, expecting Joseph to be angry because their money had been returned the first time, but they're surprised he invites them to a feast. And when it's time for them to return home, Joseph tests them again, returning their money as before. And then he adds something. He puts a silver cup in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. And then after they had gone a short distance from the city, and while they're trying to figure out what to do about this this new problem that comes up, Joseph's men overtake them and accuse them of stealing. Now, they're brought before Joseph, and Joseph has the upper hand. And he's still testing them. He said Benjamin would have to be his servant since the silver cup was found in his sack. And at this, Judah makes an impassioned plea offering to take Benjamin's place. Perhaps Judah's plea convinced Joseph that his brothers had changed, and that's when he decides, finally, to reveal his identity to them. Now here is Genesis 45. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So the brothers return home to their father and they tell him about it. And his reaction is recorded in verses 25 and following. They went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. I really like the touch in the narrative where when he's in his grief, and then also when he's in dis- disbelief and his heart is numb, the text calls him Jacob. And then when there's a shift and the spirit of his, his spirit revives, suddenly he's known as Israel again. I just, I think that's subtle. I like the way that was added. It shows that the old identity came back, that, that 
his truest best self was there and present when he heard this good news about Joseph. Uh, eventually, Jacob dies. We'll, we'll get to that next episode, but um, I do want to say that after Jacob's death, Joseph repeated the words that he told his brothers on that occasion, that he did not see these events as random tragedies and lucky breaks. To Joseph, they were proof of God's faithfulness. And so you have this, this famous verse in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this is just another one of those Bible stories that shows God's faithfulness, and and you can read one after another. This isn't the only one. Now, there's the story, and you see the three examples of God's faithfulness played out and the preservation of the covenant that God made with Abraham. We still have a little bit more time in this episode, so what I want to do with the rest of the time is follow this remarkable illustration of God's faithfulness with nine important biblical facts about the faithfulness of God. And I'll just roll them out there pretty quickly in quick succession and and give some verses to back them up. But these are very important. They, They applied in the story in this episode, and they apply to us today. Number one, faithfulness is an inseparable part of God's nature. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. To have a correct understanding of God's attributes, you have to see all of them as one. So, for example, God's immutability, the fact that he does not change, presupposes his faithfulness if if he doesn't if he doesn't change then he's always going to be faithful he can't be unfaithful that would require a change there's an old hymn that says we blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish but not changeth thee nothing changes god and so he has to be faithful It's really important that you look at God's nature that way. We want to list out his attributes and say, well, he's omnipotent. Number two, he's omniscient. Number three, he's omnipresent. Number four, he's merciful. Number five, he's righteous. Number six, he's uh, immutable. Number seven, he's, he's faithful and act like he works on those individually. But they're all a part of the whole, which is God. So faithfulness is an inseparable part of his nature. Number two. Faithfulness is truth in action. Now, you know God's word is truth, John 17, 17. His faithfulness is putting that word into action as he carries out every promise and every warning he issues through inspiration. Number three, God's faithfulness is infinite. There's no borders, no boundaries to it, no limits. The psalmist says in Psalm 36, verse 5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. There is not a word that he hasn't fulfilled, not a promise he has not kept. There never will be. Number four, God's faithfulness is indiscriminate. He is faithful to everyone. Psalm 119, 90 says, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. 
And numerous biblical writers tell us that God is no God is no respecter of persons. He is indiscriminate in the way that he is faithful. You don't have to worry about where you come from or if you have a lot of money or what your nationality or background is or if you live in a particularly well uh, evangelized area or if you're on the mission field. It doesn't matter. God will be faithful to you no matter who you are. Number five, the circumstances have no ill effect on God's faithfulness. Even after Jerusalem was destroyed, Jeremiah was extolling the faithfulness of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Joseph evidently understood this. No matter how bad things got, no matter how unfairly he was treated, he never quit believing in the faithfulness of God. Number six, God's faithfulness makes his promises irrevocable. Whatever you read in his word, they're going, uh, those promises are going to come true because God is faithful. Hebrews 10.23 says, He who promised is faithful. Hebrews 6 verse 18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. Once a covenant with Abraham was made, it was impossible for Abraham not to become a great nation. It was impossible for that nation not to bless the, wor- the world. God's words set Abraham's family down a course not even they could alter. Number seven, God's faithfulness stands as a witness to amazing truths. So because he's faithful, there's a lot of other things that, that are natural outcomes of that. One example of what I'm talking about here is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So why are we able to be called into fellowship together as God's church? Because of his faithfulness. Another great one is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I know that whatever I face, whether it be a trial or a temptation to sin, I can endure that trial, that test, because God is faithful and he's not going to put more on me than I am able to handle. And there are lots of other examples that we could share along that line. Think about it. Maybe you know, after this or through the week, be thinking about God's faithfulness. And a good exercise is to go in your mind through some passages of Scripture, just some examples, and and think, since God is faithful, what else has to be true? What do I know will come to pass because God is indeed faithful? Okay, here's the next one. Number eight, I think. God's faithfulness is the basis for a life of faith. I mean, can you put your faith in someone who is disloyal and false and lies all the time? You can't. So in order for us to be faithful, God has to be faithful. The Christian life only makes sense that way. Since God has proven that he keeps his promises, then we're not going to make um, 
our decisions based on worldly wisdom or emotions. We'll put our we'll base our choices on God's word, trusting in his faithfulness. I found a quotation from Purit, the Puritan Samuel Clark that I thought was very helpful. He said, A fixed, constant attention to the promises and a firm belief of them would prevent solicitude and anxiety about the concerns of this life. It would keep the mind quiet and composed in every change and support and keep up our sinking spirits under the several troubles of life. Christians deprive themselves of their most solid comforts by their unbelief and forgetfulness of God's promises. For there is no extremity so great, but there are promises suitable to it and abundantly sufficient for our relief in it. A thorough acquaintance with the promises would be of the greatest advantage in prayer. With what comfort may the Christian address himself to God in Christ when he considers the repeated assurances that his prayers shall be heard? So, the Christian, he can be faithful because God is faithful. That's that's the bottom line. And then the final point about God's faithfulness. Our whole hope of future blessedness rests upon the faithfulness of God. The promises of life beyond this life, along with the resurrection, the new body, a heavenly home, all of those things are attractive, but they're just words if it's not for the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness gives those words power, and it's because of His faithfulness that we can face anything, even death. The whole Bible hinges on the covenant that was made with Abraham. This isn't just the the only story where it seems that that covenant may be in trouble. You have other examples in the lives of Moses. Uh, Esther is a good one. Hezekiah is another good one. Jeremiah and in the life of Jesus Christ. And as we look at those, we might be tempted to look at them as close calls. But there was never any question about the outcome. We may have our doubts about things, but God remains faithful. He will never let us down. And with that in mind, we'll pause until the next time when we are able to finish this series on the life of Jacob. Stay with us till then.